This is episode number 268 of the AWS podcast, released on 22nd of October 2018. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon Lesher here with you. Great to have you back. And it is a bumper crop of updates to share with you today. So let's take that journey together. If you develop field programmable gate arrays or FPGAs, they're very hard to say, you'll be familiar with the EC2 F1 instances. Now, these are available in three new regions, in Europe, London and Frankfurt, and also in Asia-Pacific Sydney. Now, these are available as a private preview, so you can sign up for those links in the show notes. But this allows you to do FPGA development in a really robust way using a variety of different instance types. And the team have also introduced what's called DRAM data retention. So this allows developers to swap Amazon FPGA images at runtime much quicker than before with less data orchestration complexity. So now you simply load a new AFI and continue using the data that persists in the FPGA attached DRAM. So you don't have to do the unnecessary data movement. And this improves overall application performance. So we know that a lot of customers will be excited with that. We've also upgraded the cloud FPGA development tools. So there's a new FPGA developer AMI version 1.5.0. This supports the latest 2018.2 Vivado from Xilinx, and this gives you better frequencies and faster build times compared to previous versions. And it helps you just do things quicker. And that's always a good thing. Now, these AMI improvements are available at no additional charge. There's also a new instance type, and this is called the F1 F4X Large. And this has two Xilinx Ultrascale Plus FPGAs. And this gives you a different sort of price performance option between the existing sizes of the F12X Large, which has a single FPGA, and the F116X Large, which has eight FPGAs. So if you needed something in the middle, that's now available to you as well. Another new instance type uh, that's been around for a little while but is spreading across a number of regions is the EC2R5 instances. And these are really useful for things like high-performance databases, distributed in-memory caches, in-memory databases, and big data analytics. So these run Intel Xeon Platinum 8000 series processors, and these have a sustained all-core frequency of 3.1 gigahertz. So basically, you get up to 50% more vCPUs and 60% more memory than the R4 instances. So this is really useful. You'll find these are available in the Asia-Pacific Seoul, Sydney, and Tokyo regions, the Europe, Frankfurt, and London regions, US West, North California, Canada Central, GovCloud US West regions. This is also in addition to the US East North Virginia, US East Ohio, US West Oregon, and Europe Island regions where they were already available. So check them out if it fits your performance profile. Another instance type that's now generally available is a high memory instance that offers up to 12 terabytes of memory. Now, these are purpose-built to run large in-memory databases, so things like production deployments of SAP HANA uh, and other types of really memory-intensive workloads. These high-memory instances are EBS-optimized by default and give you 14 gig of dedicated storage bandwidth to encrypted and unencrypted volumes. And it also gives you very high networking throughput and low latency with 25 gig of aggregate network bandwidth using the Elastic Network Adapter Enhanced Networking. They are also the first EC2 instances powered by an eight-socket platform using the latest generation Intel Xeon Platinum 817M Skylake processors as well. So these are really useful to run some of those bigger, chunkier workloads. And they're also available as bare metal instances on dedicated hosts as well for reservation in a number of regions. So check out region availability, and this will give you lots and lots of options. So now you can have anything from six terabytes, nine terabytes, and 12 terabytes of memory in an instance. That's a lot of terabytes by anyone's measure. There's also another new instance type that's actually smaller rather than larger. And this is called the G3S X Large. 
Now, like other G3 instances, this is powered by NVIDIA Tesla M60 GPUs, but it's designed to be more cost-effective for those workloads where you don't actually need a lot of vCPU and RAM that you get with the current instance sizes, but you just want the GPU. So the new one has one GPU and only four vCPUs and 30 and a half gig of RAM, rather than, for example, the G3 4X Large, which had 16 vCPUs and 122 gig of RAM. So this gives you a really nice price point and performance point for particular applications that really bias heavily towards that GPU use and don't actually need a lot of CPU and memory. Now, of course, related to the use of EC2 is, of course, the use of auto-scaling and also the spot market. Now, we love auto-scaling because of the auto part, and the auto can be driven by uh, policies that detect different performance metrics, et cetera, to scale up and down, but also you know sometimes that things are going to happen. A really common use case is if you have a, uh, a batch run that takes place at a typical time or you have a spike of workload for maybe uh, college course signups or some other seasonal-type workload. Well, the good news is that the Amazon EC2 Spot Console now supports scheduling scaling for application auto scaling. So it means you can plan your scaling activities based upon predictable workload patterns. And you can do this across your spot fleet to scale up and down at specific times. So this is really nice to just have that predictive type approach for those seasonal things and things you know are coming. You can now do it within the console. Now it's interesting, we often talk about the new and the shiny. But there is also the legacy of software that we have for a long period of time. The good news is that the Amazon Linux 2 AMI now supports 32-bit applications and libraries. And it allows you to run those 32-bit applications on Amazon Linux 2, which means you have a robust platform to run over a long period of time. In fact, Amazon Linux 2 is the next generation Amazon Linux operating system, and it provides five years of long-term support. You can use it as an AMI and EC2, as a Docker container image on any Docker environment. It's also available as virtual machine images for things like KVM, uh, Oracle VM VirtualBox, Microsoft Hyper-V, and VMware ESXi for on-premises development and testing as well. doesn't cost you anything and you can use it as you like. A lot of customers are migrating to the cloud really, really quickly. And one of the services they like to use is something called the AWS Server Migration Service. Now, this allows you to migrate on-premises virtual machines across into AWS. And a change has been made where we now support data volumes of up to 16 terabytes. So this lets you migrate those large databases and content management servers that in the past you couldn't necessarily do. In the past, you could do up to four terabytes, which sounded pretty big, but 16 terabytes is much bigger. So now you can migrate those VMware vSphere and Microsoft Hyper-V environments much more easily and do this in real time. So you can migrate the data in an incremental fashion and then switch over when you're ready. So that's a great improvement to get you going quicker. If you're doing a large-scale migration process, then you should take a look at the AWS Migration Hub. This now has application migration status automation. So now it will actually display all the different tools you've got running from AWS and different partners doing your migration, and it'll show you when the app has been migrated, when it starts, when it stops, how it's going, etc. And this allows you to do it through a grouping mechanism, which is really useful when you're migrating hundreds or even thousands of servers to AWS. So in the past, you had to kind of manually update the status. Now it will automatically update for you and keep you up to date to share your portfolio with other people that need to see it. So your key stakeholders may want to say, hey, where are we up to? You can now show them really, really easily. 
If you're still in the exploratory stage, you can use the AWS Application Discovery Service or ADS. Now, this helps enterprise customers plan their migration projects by gathering information about their on-premises data centers. And it now has a data exploration feature. This allows you to query the data that the ADS agents pull from your on-premises servers in one single location. So this means you can assess and plan your migration project in depth. Now, this capability uses obviously the combination of Amazon S3, uh, Amazon Athena, and a whole lot of predefined queries allowed to do that integration and analysis. You can also visualize your query output using Amazon QuickSight as well. It really gives you a window into the data that you have. But what if you don't want to run servers? What if you're more in the serverless uh, approach of the world? Well, some great news for those customers who are using AWS Lambda or thinking about AWS Lambda. So in the past, the maximum execution time or timeout for a Lambda function was five minutes. And short functions are good functions. We all know that's how you want to decompose things. But sometimes things can take a little longer. Well, the great news is you can now set the timeout value for a function to any value up to 15 minutes. So this gives you even more processing capability and processing time for some of those longer running functions or functions that may expand in processing time based upon the volume of work they're doing. So that's great news for a start. The second great piece of news for our customers is we've published a service level agreement or SLA for AWS Lambda. Specifically, we will use commercially reasonable efforts to make Lambda available with a monthly uptime percentage for each AWS region during any monthly billing cycle of at least 99.95%. So this allows you to have a little more information about what that SLA is for AWS Lambda that you may want to use with your own stakeholders as well. But let's talk visualization. So if you use the AWS serverless application model, SAM or CloudFormation, you can now manage and monitor your serverless applications from the AWS Lambda console using the new applications menu. If you're a regular Lambda user, you may have seen that pop up. This allows you to view all your resources that together make up your application and lets you monitor performance errors and traffic metrics for that application. So it really ties it all together in a really neat way. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how that evolves over time and how people take advantage of that. If on the other hand, you're deploying containers and you're using Amazon EKS, it now supports dynamic admission controllers. So this lets you deploy custom webhooks that enable additional open source tooling for controlling network traffic and monitoring Kubernetes clusters on AWS. So previously, you couldn't use dynamic admission controllers with Amazon EKS, so it was harder to do you know, automatic sidecar injection and other cool things that you might want to do. Well, guess what? Now you can. Uh, so you can use open source tools like Istio. You can do a whole lot of different patterns that really make sense to particular environments. The other thing that is offered to customers now for Amazon EKS is a simplified cluster setup using the update kubeconfig CLI command. So this allows you to create a kubeconfig file during your ECS for Kubernetes cluster creation with a single command. So this really speeds up the time it takes to populate required information into that file and gets you up and running faster. And that's got to be a good thing. So let's switch to the data world. And the first thing is a new capability for Amazon Aurora. It's something called Parallel Query. And this is now generally available. And what this does is provide faster analytical queries over your transactional data. Essentially, it can speed up your queries by up to two orders of magnitude whilst maintaining high throughput for your core transactional workload. It is a fascinating technology. Great link to the AWS blog that dives into detail about how it works. Basically, what it does is it takes advantage of Aurora's architecture by pushing processing down into the Aurora storage layer, spreading the computation across thousands of nodes. 
So by doing this where possible, it really reduces the pressure on CPU, memory, and network contention with the core workload. So this is currently available for MySQL 5.6 compatible Amazon Aurora databases, and it's currently available in US East North Virginia, US East Ohio, US West Oregon, EU Ireland, and Asia Pacific Tokyo. Uh, so you can get started in those regions, expect them to be in other regions soon too. A couple of other really great improvements for Amazon Aurora is it now supports stopping and starting of database clusters. So now you can turn them off if you're using them for development and test purposes, if you don't want it running all the time. It's just a few clicks in the console or a simple API call or a command line call as well. And basically what it does is it stops the primary instance and any Aurora replicas that you're running. Now, whilst the database cluster is stopped, you're charged for the cluster storage and any manual snapshots or backup storage that you have, but not for database instance hours. You can also do a point-in-time restore to any point in time within your specified backup retention window as well. And when you start or restore your database cluster, it has the same configuration as when it's stopped. So this includes its endpoint, replica instances, parameter groups, VPs, security groups, the whole enchilada. You can stop a database cluster for up to seven days at a time. Now, after seven days, it'll automatically be restarted. And there's details as to why that is uh, in the um, documentation. But basically, it's good to keep your database fresh and up to date. Another thing you can now do with Amazon Aurora is create read replicas in up to five AWS regions. And this is available for Amazon Aurora with MySQL compatibility. So this really helps you improve your disaster recovery posture, scale your read operations in regions closer to your application users or users to migrate from one region to another. In the past, you could deploy in one region and have a read replica in another region. Now you can have up to five regions, which is really interesting for a lot of use cases. Now, of course, databases are important, and one of the worst things that can happen to you as a, an operator is to lose your database somehow, and things do go bump in the night. So the great thing is now Amazon RDS now provides database deletion protection, and you can enable this for your Amazon RDS database instances and for your Amazon Aurora database clusters. So basically what happens is when you create that cluster or configure that cluster with deletion protection, the database cannot be deleted by any user. Now, this deletion protection is available for Amazon Aurora and Amazon RDS for MySQL, MariaDB, Oracle, PostgreSQL, and SQL Server databases, instances in all AWS regions. And this is now enabled by default when you select the production option for your database instance when you create it through the console. You can also turn it on and off for existing database clusters with a few clicks on the console or the CLI or the API. You know the drill by now. And basically what happens is if you try and delete it or delete it accidentally, it will be blocked until such time as you change that flag. This is a mechanism you're probably quite familiar with if you've ever used EC2 termination protection. This expands it to RDS and Aurora, and it is a thing you should definitely use. A service that's become really popular is something called Amazon LightSail. And this is a service that allows you to deploy really specific software packages and deployment patterns that a lot of customers use at really, really low cost. So now we've added managed databases to the platform. So this allows you to create a fully configured database in minutes for a low predictable price. Lightsail databases bundle together a database instance, SSD back storage, and a data transfer allocation and management tools all together. Now, you can, of course, scale your database independent of your virtual servers. You can run standalone databases in the cloud. You can have multi-tiered applications. LightSail makes that experience really, really easy. And, of course, it's a fully managed service, so it automatically performs common maintenance tasks like patching and 
doing updates for the underlying database infrastructure and operating system, uh, upgrading databases between minor versions, etc. It also provides data encryption and it also includes integrated password management as well. So the LightSail databases support MySQL and PostgreSQL is coming soon in all regions where LightSail is available. If you use Amazon RDS for MySQL and MariaDB, you'll probably be interested to know that you can now use the M5 instance types when you're launching your clusters. So these are powered by 2.5 gigahertz Intel Xeon scalable processors and give you an improved price performance uh, profile when compared to the M4 instances. So this instance family also has a larger size instance type. So this is the M524X large, which gives you 96 vCPUs, 384 gigabytes of memory, and 25 gig of network bandwidth. It also uses ENAs, uses NVMe Express technology as well. So you get great throughput and performance. So these are available now, so you can take advantage of that. It seems to me that uh, one of the themes of today is things being bigger and support of more. Well, this continues for Amazon RDS for Oracle. It now supports database storage sizes of up to 32 tibibytes. Uh, so this is an increase from 16 tibibytes. So it's now supported for provisioned IOPS and general purpose SSD types as well. So again, this allows you to support those larger, chunkier databases than in the past you may have wanted to run in Amazon RDS but couldn't. So you may have rolled your own Oracle database on EC2. Now you can move it into Amazon RDS and get all the automation and simplicity out of that. Continuing with the RDS, you can now also specify a database parameter group when you restore your Amazon RDS or Amazon Aurora database from a snapshot or restore a database to a specific point in time. In the past, it used to use the default parameter group and then you had to change it after the restore is finished. This now integrates it into the one step. So it's one of those classic things of let's make the process easier and faster. So I hope that helps you in some of your use cases. What about in-memory databases? Let's talk Amazon ElastiCache and specifically Amazon ElastiCache for Redis. And it now allows you to do read replica scaling. So basically what you can do is you can easily scale your reads and improve your availability without requiring manual steps or needing to make application changes. And this is a cool thing. Now this applies for sharded Redis. Now we already supported the adding and removing of read replicas for unsharded Redis or non-Redis cluster mode. Now if you have sharded clusters, this will work as well automatically. So this means you can right size your Reddit cluster's read capacity without having to take a manual snapshot or restore it to a new cluster and changing all the settings and et cetera, et cetera. You know the deal. Also, you'll notice faster cluster creation. In fact, you'll see up to 40% reduction in those cluster creation times. So things should move quickly. This is available in all AWS regions where you have Amazon ElastiCache for Redis already available. So if you are a Redis user, this is something that will be interesting to you. If searching on data is more your speed, then Amazon Elasticsearch now supports encrypted communication between the Elasticsearch nodes. This node-to-node -node encryption means that you can host those sensitive workloads with very stringent security and compliance requirements. Basically, it implements TLS for all communications between the Elasticsearch instances in a cluster. So this means any data that you send to your Amazon Elasticsearch service domain over HTTPS remains encrypted in flight whilst being distributed and replicated between the nodes. So we always had the security into the cluster, but now you've got that security within the nodes as well. Now, the good thing is all certificates are deployed and rotated automatically by the service throughout the life of the domain without any additional operational overhead. So you can enable node-to-node -node encryption when creating any domain running Elasticsearch 6.0 or greater. There's no additional fees uh, and check out the user guide for how to do that. 
I have to admit that one of my favorite data services at the moment is Amazon Athena. I'm finding myself using it on a daily basis. And basically, it's an interactive query service that lets you easily analyze data that's in Amazon S3 using standard SQL. And being an SQL user from many, many years back, it's nice and familiar. So there is a great new capability. We now have support for create table as select or CTAS statements. Now you can use the CTAS statement to create a new table from existing tables on a subset of data or a subset of columns. And you also have the option to convert the data into columnar formats. So you can convert things into Apache Parquet, Apache Orc and partition it. So what this does is it means it will automatically add the resultant table and partitions to the Glue Data Catalog and make them immediately available for subsequent queries. Now, by default, CTAS statements in Athena write data in Parquet format, but you can write them in Apache Orc, Avro, JSON, and text. There are also options to use GZIP or Snappy as compression if you want to. And you can also bucket your data by columns or choose to encrypt it as well. Lots and lots of details about how and why you'd use that, but if I've mentioned the word CTAS and your ears have pricked up, then uh, this is something you should definitely look at. If on the other hand, using Amazon Redshift is more your pace, well, guess what? There is now a query editor to run queries directly from the AWS Management Console. So in the past, you would uh, set up uh, a SQL front end, you connect using some sort of external JDBC and ODBC client, done that myself many, many times. Well, no longer, no more. You can now run those queries in the console. You can save your most commonly run queries and you can have them ready to go next time you're doing things. So this is really useful for some of those ad hoc things that we tend to do from time to time. It's available in uh, US East North Virginia, US East Ohio, US West North California, US West Oregon, Canada Central, South America, Sao Paulo, EU Frankfurt, Ireland, London, and Paris. And in Asia Pacific, Mumbai, Seoul, Singapore, Sydney, Tokyo, and Osaka. If MapReduce is more your pace though, well, we now have support for TensorFlow and S3 Select with Spark on Amazon EMR. So this is with release 5.17.0. Now, TensorFlow 1.9 is a popular machine and deep learning framework. And S3 Select is a really powerful capability to analyze and select data directly on S3 without having to do any other processing. So now you can use S3 Select with Spark. So this allows the Spark applications to selectively query a subset of data from a large object in S3. Now this is great because it improves performance by reducing the amount of data that you have to transfer in and out of the cluster. And also in this release, you can configure Jupyter Hub on EMR to save and persist notebooks directly to S3. So this is very nifty, plus a whole bunch of other improvements to packages like Apache Flink, Apache HBase, and Presto, et cetera. So if you're a user of uh, EMR, this will be something interesting to you. A service that we've seen be really popular with customers when they're migrating data between database engines is something called the AWS Database Migration Service. And it is accompanied by the AWS Schema Conversion Tool, or SCT. And what this allows you to do is to move data across and also recast that data when necessary into formats supported by different databases. So now the service makes it easier for you to migrate Apache Cassandra NoSQL databases into Amazon DynamoDB. So now you can migrate your Cassandra databases to DynamoDB and then replicate ongoing changes to those DynamoDB tables as well. After you've migrated from the Cassandra databases, you get all the benefits of DynamoDB, so the consistent single millisecond latency at any scale and the fact that you don't have to manage it, etc. It's been interesting seeing some of our customers do this because they're trying to reduce the cost of operating their data layer. Uh, in fact, um, some of our customers have run their DynamoDB 
backed applications with up to 70% TCO savings when compared to Cassandra. And they've also been able to take advantage of things like global tables, backup or restore, encryption at rest, etc. Things that they had used Cassandra for in the past are available to them in DynamoDB now as well. So this migration process makes it easy to switch if it makes sense to you. A data-based solution we've talked about in the past is the Data Lake solution. And this is something created by the AWS Solutions team, which is a automated reference implementation that deploys a highly available and cost-effective data lake architecture in the AWS cloud with a user-friendly console for searching and requesting data sets. Well, many customers have said, hey, could you integrate that with Active Directory from Microsoft? And the answer is now yes. So the solution now includes a federated template that lets you launch a version of the solution that is ready to integrate with your Microsoft Active Directory environment. Environment. So this is a really great update for customers who have that identity management in their environment. You can now plug it directly in. Now, I've kind of mentioned uh, Amazon S3 tangentially in relation to a lot of other updates, but there is a specific update that I think is really cool. Amazon S3 cross-region replication or CRR now supports object filtering based on S3 object tags. So you can now identify individual objects using those tags for automatic replication for compliance or data protection. This is useful because the basic version of CR automatically replicates every object that is uploaded to an S3 bucket to a destination bucket in a different AWS region that you choose. Now what you can do is you can have much finer grain control over which objects you want to replicate and which ones you don't. So this gives you far more control over the feature. You can still have it replicate everything, but if you have a strong tagging regime on your objects, you can apply this ruling to it as well. It is now available with cross-region replication in all commercial AWS regions today. Many customers obviously work in a hybrid environment, so they have a lot of on-premises infrastructure and they use the AWS cloud. And one of the things customers have used is the AWS storage gateway as kind of a bridge between those two environments. Now, in the past, it was a software-only solution being delivered in a virtual machine. It is now available pre-installed on a hardware appliance, which you can buy directly from amazon.com and manage from the AWS console. Now, this is based on a Dell EMC powered server with a validated configuration, and you have the option to deploy that as a physical device, or you can keep on using your virtual devices as in the past. But what this allows you to do is develop a hybrid cloud storage infrastructure very, very easily without having to build the server yourself. Now, currently, this is available on Amazon.com or with an Amazon business account for delivery within the United States. And the appliance can be used with the US East North Virginia and Ohio regions and the US West Oregon and Northern California regions at this point. Let's talk networking. There's been quite a few really interesting and fundamental changes made to the networking landscape that could affect how you build and design systems for the better. Firstly, AWS Private Link. Now, this is a service that allows you to privately access services hosted on AWS in a highly available and scalable manner without using public IPs and without requiring the traffic to traverse the internet. Well, AWS Private Link now supports access over AWS VPN. So this means if you're trying to access those endpoints from an on-premises network, you can without having to use AWS Direct Connect. So this is a really interesting capability that allows you to really create those hybrid architectures. Another related thing for AWS Private Link is it now also supports access over inter-region VPC peering. So you can imagine if you have VPCs in different regions that need to talk to each other, but you want to take advantage of the private nature of the AWS Private Link endpoints, you now can do that using your existing inter-region VPC peering capability, which is really nice. Similarly, the network load balancer now also supports the use of the AWS VPN. So again, you can use the network load balancer to access systems on-premises. 
rather than having to use Direct Connect to make that happen, which you, of course, still can. But if you only want to use AWS VPN, you can do that too. And the network load balancer also supports inter-region VPC peering as well. So you can deploy that similar pattern again. Another update, and this one is for AWS Direct Connect, and one I was super excited about because I know a lot of customers have wanted this for some time. We now support jumbo frames for Amazon Virtual Private Cloud traffic. Now you can have an MTU that is over 1,500 bytes. In fact, it could be up to 9,001 bytes. And what this does is lowers the packet overhead. It means you can send fewer packets for the same amount of data. There's a whole bunch of reasons why you'd like to use jumbo frames. Well, the short answer is now you can, and it's available for wherever AWS Direct Connect is available in the existing AWS regions. Now, Amazon CloudFront is, of course, our content distribution network, and the team there is always working hard to roll out new endpoints and edge locations all around the world. And there are two new edge locations that they're announcing in Fajera in the United Arab Emirates and another one in Paris, France. Now, Fajera, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, is our second edge location in the UAE. Uh, the first in Dubai was la- launched just last month. So we can expect our customers in the UAE to see up to 90% latency improvements on average. And what the new edge location in Paris, France does, it increases our capacity by 50% within the area. So that will also improve the overall experience. All right, enough with the infrastructure. Let's talk development tools for a while. So AWS Code Build now allows you to build Atlassian Bitbucket pull requests. So if your team is using Bitbucket as its source code repository, AWS Code Build can accept those webhooks from Bitbucket to automatically trigger a build when you push a code change. In the past, you had to do it manually. Now it's automated. Super excited to see that uh, integration because, of course, Atlassian is a great Australian company that I'm very proud of as well. In another change to the AWS uh, development tool family, AWS CodeCommit now supports file and folder actions via the CLI and SDKs. So what this means is you can use AWS CodeCommit to directly delete a file, get the contents of a file and access a folder through the AWS CLI and the SDKs. In the past, you needed to install and configure a Git client to perform any of those actions. Now, most of us have that client on there, but for those people that didn't want to have to deploy that every time to do things, now you can save time by just doing it with the CLI. So that's a nice bit of efficiency. Might save on some coding as well. Now, one thing about developers that I love is we all have our own view of which is the best language, which is the quote-unquote right language, and uh, there are lots of them. (laughs) And the good news is that AWS Cloud9 now supports TypeScript. Now, I know that a lot of customers love using TypeScript because they like the robustness it brings and the capabilities it brings for a variety of reasons. The great thing is AWS Cloud9 now makes it easy to develop those projects. Some of the capabilities that AWS Cloud9 supports from a TypeScript perspective includes auto-completion, gutter icons, find references, go to definition, go to symbol, a whole lot of stuff that just means you can code faster and get going done. You can import uh, an existing TypeScript project. uh, You can start a brand new one. It's really, really easy to get going. So you can visit the console and check out AWS Cloud9 to see how that all fits together. Many of you listening will use AWS CloudFormation on a day-to-day basis and find it uh, intrinsic in what you do. So the great thing is that the AWS CloudFormation team have improved coverage updates for a variety of services. There are increased coverage for components within Amazon API Gateway, Amazon ECS, Amazon Aurora Serverless, Amazon ElastiCache, and lots, lots more, even IoT OneClick, etc. So take a look at that uh, link in the show notes, and you can see all the new cool things you can automate with code. If you're more of the AWS Elastic Beanstalk persuasion, you'll probably be happy to know that you can now run your applications on the new T3 instance types. And we also now have support for Go 1.11. 
So this allows you to take advantage of the most modern infrastructure and some of the most modern coding languages as well. The console now also supports the network load balancer. So in the past, you could only create it using the CLI. Now it's in the console as well. So this is really useful if you've got an application that's balancing TCP traffic and you want super high performance with really low latency and also the ability to cope with really sudden and volatile traffic patterns. And hey, they never happen, do they? Um, this is a great work way to, to use things. Also, another thing to point out is that the AWS Elastic Beanstalk console now defaults to using application load balancer by default instead of the previous generation classic load balancer. So just keep an eye on that to make sure you're choosing the load balancer that suits you the best. Really, these days you should be using the application load balancer or the network load balancer depending on your use case versus the classic one. Just like everyone has their own view on uh, programming languages, uh, there are many, many views on what the right user interface and frameworks are to be used to develop things. One of the things I actually do quite like using myself is something called Vue.js, V-U-E.js. And the AWS Amplify service now supports using that framework to build cloud-powered web apps with JavaScript. So you can use the AWS Amplify package for Vue.js to add cloud features like authentication, user storage, analytics, and chatbots with just a few lines of code. So this is a really nifty thing. If that's a framework you like or have been thinking about using, AWS Amplify now provides support for that. It also now also provides support for securely embedding Amazon Sumerian AR and VR scenes in web applications. And this is really interesting because I'm seeing this happen more and more where people are wanting a more sophisticated and VR-based or AR-based 3D rendered interface for their applications, particularly when it has custom interaction type components. Now you can do this using a new XR category in the JavaScript library using AWS Amplify to embed the Amazon Sumerian scenes into your web applications. You can do a whole lot of um, customization. You can choose how to load graphics, the surrounding user interface. It really lets you control things at a very granular level. Also supports, of course, use of Amazon Cognito credentials to lock down access to things. A whole bunch of capabilities there, really useful. If you deploy APIs for your application, you've probably taken a look at the Amazon API Gateway, which is a very handy service for presenting and managing APIs. It now supports multiple headers and query string parameters with the same name in the API request. So in the past, it had to be unique. Now you can pass multiple values for the same key in the header and query string when calling the API. And now this feature also supports returning multiple headers with the same name in the API response. So for example, if you want to send multiple set cookie headers, you can now do it. Now this has been rolled out to all regions where the API gateway is available. Another change for the Amazon API Gateway is it now supports importing and exporting APIs using the Open API 3.0 API specification. Now, this is a really widely adopted standard, and the 3.0 version is the latest version and has a bunch of improvements over the previous version, version 2, you should hope. Uh, so this now allows you to export and import wherever you want to. Still, we also include the Swagger capability as well, but this allows us to support even more standards for having portability of your APIs and again, using that common definition language to specify your APIs and to store information about them. Now, related to APIs, obviously GraphQL is uh, one of the most uh, interesting technologies in that space at the moment, becoming very, very popular. And if you want to use AWS AppSync, in the past, you kind of had to know what GraphQL was, how it worked, etc. What the team have launched now is a guided API builder for AWS AppSync. So what this allows you to do is to define a data model that corresponds to your application's business logic using a web form. 
it will automatically then create the GraphQL schema, the Amazon DynamoDB tables, any resolvers you need at the back end, and you can get going really, really fast. So this is nice to reduce that learning curve and get the benefits of AWS AppSync without having to go through the learning curve of learning GraphQL uh, for your particular use case. Let's talk artificial intelligence and let's talk some of those kind of off-the-rack services you can use to build AI into your applications. Amazon Polly is a service that turns text into lifelike speech. In fact, you would have heard Polly speaking at the start of this podcast telling you what episode it was and when it was announced. So now we have a new capability. We have Mandarin Chinese language support. And this is a uh, uh, a voice called Zhu, Z-H-I-Y-U. I've probably mispronounced it terribly. It's our first Mandarin Chinese voice. It's a clear, bright, and natural-sounding female voice. There's a link in the show notes so you can see how that sounds. So this is really useful to now extend the Amazon Poly portfolio to include 54 voices across 27 different languages. Speaking of language support, Amazon Comprehend, which is a natural language processing service that can find insights and relationships within text, now supports four additional languages. It now supports French, German, Italian, and Portuguese. And so now you can analyze data in all those different languages using the one tool. Now you may say, well, how do I get all that data for Comprehend to use? Well, Amazon Transcribe is an automatic speech recognition service that makes it easy to add a speech-to-text capability to your applications. Now what it will do is automatically delete completed transcription jobs. So you can have end-to-end control over how long you store the outputs and it can just clean it up afterwards for you. If you're working more on the vision side rather than the text side, then you'll be interested to know that Amazon Recognition, which is a deep learning based image and video analysis service, has improved the accuracy of image moderation. So Amazon Recognition now comes with an improved image moderation model that reduces false positive rates by 40% on average without any reduction in detection rates for truly unsafe content. So what this means is that there's a lower volume of flagged images that need further review. So it means your human moderators can be more efficient because they're just processing less data. Another thing you can do is you can save time and money by filtering faces during the indexing process as well. So the new face filtering feature lets you control the quality and quantity of faces that are indexed for face recognition. So what you can do is you can detect all the images and then you can choose well which ones aren't suitable for indexing. So if it's uh, small or blurry uh, or irrelevant or in a background, etc. So things like you know, red carpet, etc. You can choose uh, to filter them out in an earlier pass. This also means you don't have to do as much code to do this work for you. It's built into the model. If you're building your own models, then Amazon SageMaker is probably a service you should look at if you're not already using it. And there've been some great little updates there. Firstly, it now supports tagging for hyperparameter tuning jobs. So now you can add one or more tags to a tuning job that's launched in that way. So you can track it much more easily and you can see what's going on and map through. So it's a small but important change. Uh, Amazon SageMaker now also supports an improved pipe mode implementation. And what this means is that we'll see up to nine times better data streaming throughput compared to file mode. So this is a really useful performance improvement for those types of models that need that improved uh, performance profile. And there's also been some improvements to the built-in image classification algorithm. So it now supports multi-label inputs and mixed precision mode for faster training. So faster training and better training is always good. So you now have that available to you. Also, you can now connect Amazon SageMaker notebooks into AWS Glue. So this makes it much easier to track what's going on in your environment and use data in different locations using the Glue framework. 
So this just avoids having to do a few manual steps. AWS Glue now also supports resource-based policies and resource level permissions for the AWS Glue data catalog. So you can now restrict access to specific data catalog objects with resource-based policies and resource level permissions. So this is really handy to limit who can access what. You can also limit the AWS Glue catalog objects that are returned from a particular call as well. So this gives you some real power over how that data flows. Let's talk management. So if you use resource groups, you'll be happy to know that the tagging API now supports six additional services. It supports Amazon Kinesis Data Firehose, AWS Secrets Manager, AWS Certificates Manager, Private CA, AWS IT Analytics, Amazon Aurora, and AWS Service Catalog. So it now supports 47 services. So it lets you programmatically perform operations across a wide range of components in a much simpler way. Now, tagging is used across uh, many AWS environments. And now if you change a tag on an AWS resource, it will now generate an Amazon CloudWatch event. So this is a really useful to track tag changes instead of having to poll the APIs or orchestrating a whole lot of calls. You can simply see when the state of a tag changes and take an action based upon that. Speaking of managing at scale, the AWS Systems Manager is a really great service that lets you to do this on a broad basis, particularly useful in patching and configuration compliance, etc. Now what you can do is you can drill down into non-compliant items for more details using the same screen. So previously you could only filter data based on compliance. So, you know, patching or configuration. Now you can group and filter based on user-defined resource groups, patching groups, custom configurations. Basically, you can tailor it to your particular workflow. There is now also support for conditional branching to other steps within the automation supported by AWS Systems Manager. And this simplifies workflow authoring and makes it very easy to automate common processes. So depending on the output of a previous step, the new branch action, so it's AWS column branch, lets you do different actions after that effect. So for example, you can patch all your instances from a single runbook, but apply different patches based upon the type of instance, you know, the common difference between Windows and Linux. Or you may create a custom stop EC2 instance runbook that mandates approval for stopping an EC2 instance with a specific tag of critical or prod. You know, the options are endless. Uh, this really gives you a lot more flexibility. And speaking of flexibility, we now also provide more control over the patching workflow in AWS Systems Manager by adding the ability to define exactly what patches are approved for deployment and how long those approved patches should be used for patching operations. So this is a custom approval workflow that you can use to control the nuances in your particular environment across particular locations. A service a lot of customers use for visibility in their environment is Amazon CloudWatch. And you can now build custom dashboards outside the AWS console. So this is really useful because you can retrieve a snapshot of a CloudWatch graph to display on your websites, wikis, and custom dashboards outside of the console. So this is done through the new GetMetric Widget Image API that allows you to create shareable charts for chat applications, ticketing systems, bug tracking tools. I expect to see a lot of my customers using this because all these sort of information sharing tools are really prevalent. The graphs that we can create within Amazon CloudWatch are very useful and insightful and quite cool. You can now spread them out through all the other tools using that particular API call. Related to Amazon CloudWatch is, of course, the Amazon CloudWatch Agent, which is a free agent that you can deploy on your EC2 instances. It now supports the ability to publish custom stats D or collect D metrics to CloudWatch. So you can use these custom metrics to create alarms. You can trigger notifications, of course, auto-scaling, etc. These are really popular open source solutions to gather system statistics. So the agent now allows you to publish and store your custom stats D and collect D metrics for up to 15 months in CloudWatch. 
And you can also publish them to an account other than the resource account where the agent is collecting metrics, so central monitoring accounts, et cetera. The other change for Amazon CloudWatch is there is now client-side metrics data aggregations. So what this means is you can aggregate metrics data on the client side and publish it in a single put metric data API call. What this allows you to do is to ingest higher volumes of metric data whilst reducing costs because you're not doing as many API calls. You can publish your metrics data in histogram format as arrays of values and counts or just use the CloudWatch agents to do what it does for you. The CloudWatch agent will automatically create percentile statistics from the data aggregations, meaning you can visualize anomalies, filter outliers, you can do a whole lot of cool stuff. This is a really nifty capability. If you're managing devices in the IoT landscape, you'll know that there is nothing more fun than managing thousands or millions of devices at scale in an automated fashion. Well, good news is the AWS IoT Device Management Service now provides in-progress timeouts and step timeouts for jobs. So you can send remote actions to one or more devices at once, control the deployments of your jobs and your devices, and you can track the current and historical status of your jobs running. And you can now also ensure that execution has to reach a particular state before it ends. If things get stuck, you can take action. Lots and lots of uh, varieties of approaches you can take to cater for these different problems. And you can time out if things aren't going well. Often uh, a deployment can get stuck for various reasons. This helps you shortcut that and get to resolution much more quickly. A security-related service that ties into operations is, of course, Amazon GuardDuty. And Amazon GuardDuty really helps customers identify anomalies in their environments through a continuous monitoring of malicious or unauthorized behavior to allow you to figure out what's going on in your environment and if anything unusual is taking place. Well, now you can customize the notification frequency to Amazon CloudWatch events for subsequent occurrences of an existing finding. So in the past, if uh, a finding was found, it would be regenerated every six hours. And now you can change that to recur in 15 minutes, an hour, or the default six-hour periods. And what this does is allows you to get those reminders that make sense for you when you're integrating into your own alerting and ticketing tools or other partner security tools. Now, remember that the unique or first-time findings will still generate a CloudWatch event close to real time, which is kind of when you want it. This is really about the subsequent notifications and controlling the volume of those. So let's talk identity for a moment. The uh, AWS Directory Service for Microsoft Active Directory, also known as AWS Managed Microsoft AD, now gives you a new option to implement the principle of least privilege by reducing the scope of access through AD trusts between the AWS Managed Microsoft AD and your existing Microsoft AD. So what this does is gives you a different approach to security and a different approach to least privilege. Links in the show notes are really useful if you're running an AD-based environment. You can now also deploy directory-aware workloads in multiple AWS accounts and VPCs by sharing a single AWS managed Microsoft AD. So this allows you to do it in a cost-effective way while still deploying Microsoft AD support in your environment. And speaking of signing on to things, the AWS single sign-on service say that three times fast, uh, gives you some more additional configuration settings to customize the user experience to accessing business applications. So you can now set the relay state, which means you can configure the specific page in the application that you expect your users to navigate to when they select the application in AWS SSO. You can also configure the session duration for business applications so your users have the right amount of time to complete tasks within the application using a single session. 
Let's talk about some changes in the video streaming world. So uh, we've updated the live streaming on AWS solution that provisions the services needed to build a highly resilient and scalable architecture to deliver your live video content worldwide. The solution now leverages the broadcast grade features of AWS Elemental Media Live to ingest your input feeds and transcode them into two adaptive bitrate HTTP live streaming streams. Media Package then packages those streams into HLS, Dynamic Adaptive Streaming over HTTP or Dash, and Microsoft Smooth Streaming, MSS formats, and those go out through Amazon CloudFront. The solution also provides a demo HTML player that you can use to test the solution. So this is really deploying all the components you need to do really effective global streaming. And speaking of AWS Elemental, AWS Elemental Media Store has increased the object size limit to 25 megabytes. Uh, This means you can originate higher bitrate content and support ultra high definition or UHD 4K quality live video streams with predictable latency and scaling to your audience. So this really helps you manage that really new scale that's coming in with the higher quality videos that are being required. Another video solution that our customers use is the Amazon Kinesis video streams capability. And you can now easily add metadata to and retrieve from individual fragments in a Kinesis video stream. So this means you can have much richer applications in the cloud. So for example, you can send GPS values as metadata with each video fragment from an on-person camera, or you can send temperature values with video fragments from a baby monitor. Uh, You can use it to do analytics. You can use it to understand if there's alerting that needs to take place, et cetera. Really, this is a a fantastic capability worth reading into if you are doing work in this space. Uh, I can't do it justice right now, but it's pretty, pretty impressive. Another thing we find that benefits customers is providing publicly available data sets. And this is called our AWS public data sets. And this is useful for researchers and developers who are interested in life sciences, environmental science, machine learning, multimedia, civic tech, and cybersecurity. There are 19 new available public data sets. These includes the tabular murus from the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, uh, cell painting image collections from the Broad Institute, a variety of machine learning data sets from Fast.ai and the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology. We have a variety of weather models from the German Meteorological Office. We have uh, some more data sets from the NOAA Big Data Project, more data sets from the International Arctic Research Center, University of Alaska. We have information from the Janagraha Center for Citizenship and Democracy. We have some cybersecurity data from Rapid7 and from Canada's Communications Security Establishment and the Canada Institute for Cybersecurity. And we have some multimedia data from xiph.org. So a variety of data sets out there to use in your applications, really great resource. If you choose to use software from the AWS Marketplace, which many customers do, you'll be happy to hear that there is now the launch of the Flexible Payment Scheduler. This is a new feature that lets you negotiate details such as the number of units, payment amounts, payment dates, and end-user licensing for your payment schedule. So the way it works is once you and an, an ISV agree on the payment details, the ISV will extend a customized offer through the seller private offers feature. And you have the option to select up to 36 payment installments and you can track details of your payments through your monthly bill from AWS. This already includes software from Armor, Cisco Stealthwatch, Cloud Health, CloudStrike, and Splunk, just to name a few. So it's been a long episode today and I hope you've stuck with me and I've left uh, one of the coolest things to last. It's a small but really useful thing for a lot of customers. You can now sign into your AWS management console with a YubiKey security key for multi-factor authentication. So this is a 
a device manufactured by Ubico, which is a third-party provider, that provides a really useful method to provide that multi-factor authentication. You can still use the Gemalto tokens as well, but now YubiKey can be used for multiple IAM and root users across AWS accounts, which means it's easy to share and manage your MFA devices for access to multiple users. You can also use your existing YubiKey, which you may use to authenticate to other third-party applications already, like GitHub or Dropbox as well, to sign into the AWS Management Console. So very easy to set it up, uh, instructions in the show notes. And this is available now as an MFA device for US East North Virginia, Ohio, US West North California, Oregon, Canada Central, Asia Pacific, Singapore, Sydney, Tokyo, Seoul, Mumbai, and EU London, Frankfurt Island, Paris, and South America, Sao Paulo public regions. Well... (laughs) These are getting longer, aren't they? Uh, Hopefully, uh, my chapter marking is working so you can navigate through a little bit easier. And we do love to get your feedback, podcast at amazon.com. And until next time, keep on building.